Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Jessica Himes. Jessica is a para track and field athlete and she has focused more specifically on being a discus thrower over the last few years. She's a two-time Paralympian and was fifth in the discus in Tokyo and a previous world record holder in the discus in the F64 class. So welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, it's great to be able to have a chat with you. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your background, your impairment, and how you got into para track and field? Absolutely. So I was born with a rare condition called amniotic banding syndrome, which caused my entire right leg to be deformed at birth. After about a year of trying to figure out how to treat my leg, my parents and doctors decided to amputate right at the ankle. So Mm -hmm. I've been wearing prosthetics ever since. And I was really active as a child. I loved sports and, you know, trying out every single type of game you could. But I was the only adaptive disabled athlete or person in my entire school. So when I was about 10, 11 years old, my parents just Googled, you know, adaptive sports mates. And they found one in Oklahoma City. And so on a whim, my family took a drive down to Oklahoma City for a vacation and to try out adaptive sports and see what it was like. And we ended up falling absolutely in love with it. And mm. that first summer was just life-changing for me. And I had never you know, really experienced that sort of you know adaptive world meets sports world. And it was a combination of two things that are very important to me. And mm-hmm. that was a really cool, really cool thing to experience. <laughs> and so what what sports did you try out there? Just track and field or did you try out other things? Yeah, track and field was the main one because that ended up kind of being my love anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But I have tried wheelchair basketball. I've tried a little bit of swimming, kind of dabbled a little bit in the idea of rowing. But mm-hmm. I've also paid attention to lots of archery and cycling I was very fascinated and still am very fascinated in all the different para sports, but Mm. track and field was my one true love. (laughs) Mm. And so were you able to pursue the track and field both at at school and, and also at college? Yes, I was. After I discovered the adaptive sports world, I decided I wanted to continue competing in my school, but also in the summers competing in the adaptive world. I slowly got, you know, a little bit better, more integrated into the adaptive world and set my sights on the Paralympics. And at the time that I made that my goal, I was in high school. So Mm -hmm. I had to balance competing at my high school as the only disabled athlete in pretty much the entire area. Mm -hmm. And then the summers going and competing with all my friends in the adaptive world. And it was a very strange sort of back and forth to have, but it was amazing to go between the two communities that were so different, but had that sport, you know, together in the same love, you know, we all shared that bond of the love of our sport. So I competed in both. And then my senior year of high school, I went to the Rio Paralympics, my first Mm. era games. And it was after those games, I really knew that I wanted to compete in college. Uh, Fortunately, in the US, there isn't a very good streamline of adaptive sports sports in college at mm-hmm. the moment there was not it's thankfully improved a lot since but I was able to find a team a non-adaptive team at University of Northern Iowa and I competed there for four years as the 
well, the only disabled athlete for my first two years. And then we mm. got a sprinter my third year. And then we were two adaptive athletes on our team. And that was really fun. Mm. And so you used to do 400 meter running as well as throwing. How different are those two events in terms of your physical demands, I guess? Yeah, they are two events that you don't typically see people do. And Mm. every time I would tell someone those were my events, they didn't quite believe me. (laughs) Um, You sort of expect, you know, with 400, you expect the like the lean strength athletes, you look at them and go, oh, that's, you know, 400, like a long sprint slash short distance runner. Mm-hmm. And then with throws, you can usually tell a thrower because they just look like they can absolutely like pick you up and throw you, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're two very different types of athletes. But for me, I mean, I had love of both of them. And then my coaches found a very strange niche that was able to work to train both of them. You know, mm-hmm. my strength, and just raw power and the discus translated to the blocks and to, you know, the integrity of the 400. And then my speed and stamina and agility of the 400 allowed me to have agility in the discus. And the discus is very much like a dance. Mm. So it's very agile, very athletic and sort of beautiful looking, at least to me. And so they strangely did help each other, even though they're not two events that you'd usually pair together to, you know, you don't improve your 400 athlete by saying, hey, go train in the discus. But mm. when you do both, it they strangely work together in a way that we weren't quite prepared for. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's pretty cool. And so what's your classification? I am T and F64. Now that I'm only a discus thrower, I do F64. Mm-hmm. And so what, what are the requirements for F64? What's kind of the key parts of that classification? So in track and field, T and F64 is lower leg amputation. Mm-hmm. For me, since my amputation is right through the ankle. I am a very straight up cut to the chase, uh, 64. In the games, we do combine with other classifications, including the 44. Back in my first games, the 44 and 64s were both combined as one classification. The mm-hmm. 44s are lower leg impairments, meaning there is some muscular neurological damage that changes how you can move the ankle and the lower part of your leg, but they do have the entirety of the leg. They aren't missing any bones or any parts from amputation. So we are now split into 44 and 64, but we do compete together in the games. And your is it your right leg or your left leg that's impacted? It is my right leg. And is that your so when you throw discus, are you spinning on your right leg or on your left leg? Uh, both technically, I'm a right-handed thrower, and mm-hmm. so I spin off my left at the start of the throw, and then I finish in the power off of my right leg. So oh. it's it's kind of interesting seeing athletes who have the same handedness, but then opposite amputation and seeing how we have opposite problems in our amputation. The beginning of the throw is super easy for me with my right leg or my left leg, but then it's way harder for me to train in the back half because I don't have the ankle movement that is really required for that part of the block. So it's kind of fun to see other amputees have the opposite challenges in the throw and things that I haven't had to deal with because I'm a right-handed thrower, right-handed or right-legged amputee. And so with that, what does your prosthetic look like? Because you said you 
your amputation is quite low down on your leg. It's at the ankle. And so is it just mostly a foot or what's sort of the dynamics of your prosthesis? Yes. So my amputation is at the ankle, but my entirety of my right leg is shorter. So my knees are about three inches apart in height. Uh, Because Mm. of this, I do have slightly more clearance than other folks who are truly at the ankle. That's just a condition of my birth, my right leg, all bones have been significantly shorter than my left the whole, Mm -hmm. my whole life. Because I do have a little bit of, you know, extra clearance for different types of feet. But for the most part, there's just a section of metal that connects right to my foot. It's only about an inch or two in height. So out in public, a lot of people at first glance will think that I have a cast on because it's not very obvious that there's a huge gap in where my limb ends. Mm. But if you look at it for more than three seconds, you can tell that there's a spacer that a foot does not fit into. <laughs> it is a prosthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what what impact does that have just from a, a training perspective? And also, do you get a lot of pressure wounds around the side of where your prosthetic limb fits? Or, you know, what sort of issues have you faced over time? Because obviously, you started competing pretty young, and through a phase of growth and development. What are some of the issues that you've had in terms of how that prosthetic fit has been over the years? Yeah, the fit is something that can be very finicky. Growing up as an APT, I had to go through all of my growth spurts. And that is very difficult when you have a prosthetic that is custom built to the exact shape and size of your leg. Mm-hmm. And so I usually went through one prosthetic a year growing up. And I think there's a, a moment in time I had three different prosthetics in three consecutive months because I was just growing so much. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like when you have shoes and you have to, you know, change them, except this impacts way more. You can't just take the shoe off and walk around and change the <laughs> shoes. You know, the process is a little more complicated and it's directly to you. It has to be snug. So that was... That's been kind of difficult through the years. Thankfully, now that I've stopped growing, it hasn't been as much of a you know a difficulty. However, I recently, just this past winter, got a new walking prosthetic, and I train and compete in my regular everyday walking prosthetic. And that was the first one I had gotten a whole new socket and foot and ankle in mm. eight years. So right. for eight years, I had been training in that leg, I went to my first and second games in that leg, the socket and everything was fit, you know, very specifically to me. And so when I got a whole new leg, we had a whole new casting, a whole new set of, you know, uh, specifications. And so when I tried that on, I had a lot of frustration because I had gotten so used to, this is how my leg feels every day when I put Mm. it on and suddenly it fits different. And even though a lot of the fittings that we changed were correct, my brain wasn't used to that. And mm-hmm. so I knew, I thought, okay, in like two months, I'm going to get used to this foot and this leg and this fit and I'll be fine. It'll be so much better. But man, the process of getting used to it was really frustrating. And what was even scarier was knowing that you know, as a professional athlete, my career depends on me being able to train and you know do all my regular stuff. But that depends on whether or not I can use my prosthetic. And so mm-hmm. I was very nervous to train in that prosthetic and walk in that prosthetic with everything being so new. But after a few weeks, I finally had a day where I realized I put it on and did my whole daily routine without consciously thinking about how weird my new leg felt. 
Mm. So that was that was really nice to have yeah. that moment because yeah. I was not sure when that would come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I can't imagine how it is just you know, it's like having a whole different foot and and ankle set up, and you you haven't got that feedback from the the ground that our foot has. Like our foot gives you know. Our, cell, our knee and the rest of our body a lot of feedback in terms of where our leg is in in relationship to the earth and your prosthetic foot doesn't do that so uh, yeah there'd be a whole lot of different sort of issues in terms of just placement of, of that foot and trusting that it's in the right position to to then load on it and, and that is harder and more I guess exacerbated when you're actually loading a fair bit in the process of throwing the discus. Yeah, it's a lot of trust you have to give in your prosthetic. <laughs> mm. Mm. And so can you tell us a little bit about what your training looks like at the moment? You're a few weeks out from your national championships and the selection trials for world champs this year. So what does training look like for you on an average week? Yeah, so right now I train mostly about four-ish days during the week. And then I either compete on the weekends or have a weekend off. This week I have a meet on Friday. And so I'm on three days of training this week, one day off in preparation as a Mm pre-meet. And then competing Friday. Those days consist right now of throwing and lifting. When I get more into an off season or a bigger break in the year, I like to do a lot of biking. I'm really big into cycling and we have some great trails around here. And I found that's a really good way to keep my body active and moving without getting too stuck in routines. I kind of picked that up when I was sprinting because sprint training, there's not a whole ton of variety. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes mentally you just get exhausted from doing that day in, day out. And so I've found other ways to kind of combat that while keeping your body in your mind sane. And so swimming and biking were two things I really liked. And so I do a lot of biking when I can too supplements my regular training Mm, okay and how important has the strength training been for you for you know obviously discus is a pretty it's i would describe it as a skill-based sport as well as a power-based sport there's a lot of technique in getting that discus out of your hand at the right time in the right sort of momentum how much is the strength training important for you it has been super, super important. It's pretty much been the one focus I've had for the past year and a half uh, Mm -hmm. with my coach. It's something that I, you know, I gained some strength at the end of my high school years and through college, but it was nowhere near what I needed if I wanted to continue into a professional career. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my coaches knew that, but at the time that wasn't really, you know, really in front of us. But after Tokyo Games, they sat down and said, okay, you know, what has brought us here and what will bring us to the next level? And we realized my strength was lacking. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, so that's been our big focus. And it's been insane seeing the transformation, um, not just like physically and how my body is, but, you know, how that affects my nutrition and how my nutrition affects it and my training and my energy levels. It's been kind of crazy to witness this explosion of strength but it's been really rewarding and it it reminds me that is that there are so many different facets to training 
and you can't mm. just neglect any one of them because it will affect all the other parts. You got to you know, pay attention to every part that goes into it. Yeah. Okay. So let's delve into that a little bit more because, you know, as you said at the start, it, it's usually pretty obvious who the throwers are <laughs> because they look <laughs> like they could throw you. And, you know, so throwers typically, especially not so much javelin, but, but particularly discus and shot, you think of bigger, more solid individuals. And, and if you look at you, certainly as a youngster, you, you certainly weren't what you describe as a big, solid individual. You looked more like the 400-metre runner. So what physical changes, apart from the strength, have there been much in the way of physical changes that you've gone through? For the most part, it's just been the strength and we've been working to add weight onto me. Some of that is muscle mass. Some of that will just be fat mass. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I was I was always a very skinny kid. And mm-hmm. I didn't really realize it until I looked back at photos of myself in the earlier days of competition. I realized I had nothing on me. <laughs> and so realizing that there are healthy ways to add weight to your body and make mm. sure that you are at a healthier weight, not just, you know, a muscle mass, but just in general, that mm. was really important to, you know, for me to actually internalize. And something that we've noticed in the discus field is a shift in body types in discus. Mm. Like mm-hmm. we mentioned, it used to be, you know, big brute strength and now agility and athleticism has really come into play a lot mm. more with the technique mm. of discus. And, even now, I mean, the on the Olympic side, the discus throwers that went to the Tokyo Games, Valerie Allman, um, Rachel Dinkoff, they are both very similar to my body type. Mm-hmm. Ones that you go look at and go, they could be sprinters. I don't know what they do. That's yep. been an interesting shift to see because we, you can have a whole range of body types and still be a thrower. You just have to play to your strengths. And for me, my strengths were not physical strength. It was not, you know, the brute force that an athlete who is larger than me can usually bring, but I can bring athleticism and Mm. agility to it that you might not get in other bodies. And so it's been, it's a kind of an interesting thing to analyze each thrower and how you can train to those strengths that you have. Mm. And so roughly how much muscle mass do you think you have put on just in terms of pounds? Oh, I don't even know. I know that Sally Bowen has my (laughs) – I just did a measure of it. But I did gain a centimeter in my bicep measurement. Wow, yeah, yeah. I felt very proud of that. (laughs) But we were looking at adding – I think our goal was 10 pounds in this past year that we had as our total goal. I don't know what percent of fat mass versus muscle mass that was. But, yeah, that was our – that was yeah. our plan, and that's one that we're continuing in this next season. Uh huh. And in terms of strength and power, what are some of your key measures of strength that you use? So with my lifting, I can't always do like the Olympic style lifts, just with my mm-hmm. knees and hips, different styles. And so some of the events we will, or some of the uh, training exercises, we will just look at. Okay, how like what is this brute number of pounds that you can or kilos that you can lift mm-hmm. and in other ways use that with training with heavier implements we like yep. to use uh, rebars and so we will look 
through the season and through the like past year of training and seeing how I am able to move through a portion of the throw with heavier weight as mm-hmm. I get stronger. And you can see that in my throws, I'll get much more stable and it won't be put off balance as much because my body can actually handle and stabilize mm-hmm. an extra amount of weight because I'm stronger. Yep. Awesome. And so how much has your nutrition changed? You said that you it's been amazing just understanding how your nutrition's had to change to support those physical changes that you're going through. Can you kind of give us an idea of how much that's changed in terms of are you eating, you know, 10% more than what you used to or is it a roughly the same amount but you're just putting it in a different sort of structure? Yeah, overall, I'm eating way more than I was before. I mm-hmm. got on this nutrition tracking app that Sally put me on and it, you know, tracks in like over on the total how many calories per day and then also what is making up those calories. Mm-hmm. And when we had we had me track a regular, you know, non-altered week and I can't remember the number, but it was nowhere near what I needed to be eating. And then we mm. put that next to my ideal planning. And she was like, look, this and like the number of calories you're eating right now, that's just maintaining your body. But if you want to get stronger and actually add more to your body weight, to your muscle mass, to your training, you need to extend what you're eating. And also, you know, the portions in which you are, you know, how you are eating is a big, big part of that. And so I, my first thing I had to do was just learn how to eat more. For yep. me, I have a an appetite that curbs fairly fast. So if I don't listen to a hunger cue like within 30 minutes, it'll kind of go away. And if I don't have a lot in a meal, I'll just kind of, you know, mosey and go, ah, it's fine. It was a meal, you know, it doesn't matter. But when you look at that through the whole day and then through a whole week or a month, there are you know, at the end of it, there are thousands of calories I was missing out on. And, mm. you know, who knows how many dozens or hundreds of grams of protein I'm missing, you know, because of these small changes. So I had to learn just to, you know, almost stuff my body in a way, not entire, obviously, but, you know, mm. how to stuff my body with more than I was used to or thought I needed to. And mm. then also, track, you know, okay, sure, you can eat this and have a good 500 calorie, you know, snack or meal or whatever, but how much of that is beneficial? How much of that is going to strictly help you? You know, if you have a whole 500 calorie snack or meal that has no protein in it, that's mm-hmm. not going to be any benefit to, you know, the strength exercises you just did. Yeah. So I've had to, I've had to really dissect what I've been eating and how I've been eating. It's been fascinating, but a very strong learning curve. <laughs> mm. And so can you kind of give us a really rough idea of what a typical day's food intake might look like to support your training? If you were having a training day, you know, just kind of run through what, you know, how you kind of put breakfast and, and your main meals together. Yeah. So I ha- usually have three main meals and then two to three snacks, depending mm-hmm. on what my day looks like. In the morning, I like to do... Uh, I love my eggs, so I do like a fried egg, some peanut butter, English uh, toast, and maybe some milk. I've been really on whole milk and maybe mm-hmm. some fruit, depending on what I have around. Then I usually, late morning, I lift. And so depending on how early I eat my breakfast, I might eat a little snack before. If not, I get into 
lift and then I have a very big solid lunch after mm-hmm. and then my which is varies depending on the day. I think my breakfast is the only main thing. <laughs> I keep <laughs> every day uh but then mid-afternoon i try to have some sort of snack that varies on days because i get i get bored of protein bars very quickly and so Mm -hmm. i've had to go through you know oh this week i'll have you know a yogurt parfait with all this stuff and this week i'll have chocolate milk and um Mm -hmm. protein powder but i'll try to have something solid in the afternoon to get those extra calories in late afternoons i usually do throwing so I have a snack to supplement my energy there. And then after that, I have one last uh, main meal, supper. Mm-hmm. I usually have some sort of beef or chicken, depending on what I make with that. And then I'm a big fan of veggies, so I cook with a lot of veggies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've been trying to have a before bedtime snack. Uh, my chocolate milk and protein powder has been a, a very good go-to for me. Mm-hmm. But I like to try to supplement that in other ways and so I don't get bored of that because it's a very good protein-packed snack, mm-hmm. but I don't want to get bored of it. So yeah, I'll you like it, you like a lot of variety. Yes, yeah, I like yeah. to have variety. So, <laughs> so yeah, I try to keep things a little bit changing um, yep. in my food intake. But yeah, I think it's usually around twenty-four hundred calories is what we're aiming for right now mm-hmm. in my meal days, and so there are plenty of days I get to about bedtime and I look at my log and I go, Oh no, how am I going to, I got to pack like 500 calories into this. <laughs> I was not keeping up with it. <laughs> yeah. And so do you find that your appetite actually has shifted a little bit to allow you to keep up with it? Because now that you've kind of been doing this consistently, or is it still something that you have to think about every day? Because if you let your body just do its natural thing, you'd fall short. When I am consistent with my meals, I found that it's so much easier. If I have like a good three days in a row where I'm on top of things, I find that the fourth day onward, my body just craves those snacks and craves Mm -hmm. those early breakfasts. And it's so easy to do. But when you go and you travel, like I've done the past two weeks, I'm out of sync. I'm not in that routine. I get up at 3 a.m. for a flight and my body's not hungry yet, so I don't eat. Then you have bad Mm. snacks. You don't have made meals throughout the day. And then I really fall short. So it's very easy for me to get out of that habit. And so I've had to be way more stricter on myself and, you know, pay way more attention to how my travel days or what my routines, how that will affect, you Mm. know, my eating habits. Because if I get off the train, it, you know, it hits me hard. It's so hard to get back onto that and build up that sort of tolerance for those meals. But I have so much more energy when I am eating correctly and enough. Mm. And I was not expecting to see that. I honestly thought when we first started this, that I was just going to fall in a food coma every day. <laughs> so much energy and it felt so good. And I, I actually felt so strong in the weight room. I mean, those mm. that first month that we shifted onto this, I would go to the gym and I would feel so energized and strong and it was nuts to me. And I thought, like, what happened? Am I just like <laughs> bulking up out of nowhere? Kind of, because I actually had the food yeah. intake to make my body work the way it should have been all the time. Go figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 uh, 
that light bulb moment of, oh, oh, yeah, food actually does help us. Funny that. Oh, man. Do you have any specific nutrition challenges other than the fact that your appetite kind of wasn't really helping you eat enough? Did you have any other nutrition challenges that you've had to overcome? Um, Really, it's just the appetite and the boredom of mm-hmm. the meals. It, it would be so easy just to buy a bulk of a certain protein bar that has you know 20 grams of protein and then eat that three times a day. You know, that would be great theoretically, but I just my brain and my body will just reject that and mm-hmm. it makes it so hard to eat and actually you know get what i need and so getting over that mental barrier and finding you know what are you know what are unique ways i can get this food and then okay how can i actually make myself eat cuz i have a plate here and i'm full but i still have food on it but oh my mm. gosh my body just does not want it you know getting over that was really hard um mm-hmm. And then just knowing that as you get stronger, like your body is going to change. And that's, you know, a very good thing for my sport, for my overall health, really. But it's, you know, the world of sports, especially track and field can be very, you know, body image heavy. Mm -hmm. And that can be difficult to balance when you know, like, okay, my body should be looking, you know, different than this. And I want to get to that point. But man, I'm going to compare, you know, what my body looks like now or back then to what it will and should look like. So that's kind of a hard thing to balance too. But, you know, Mm. thankfully the support of all the nutrition staff and also the teammates who are all going through the same thing, we can kind of slap that silliness out of each other and go like, your body's going to change and that's perfectly okay because you are much healthier, you know, at a higher weight with a little more um, muscle and fat mass on you than you were back then when you were not eating enough. And, you know, yeah. you need that to support your body and your career, but also your brain and your sanity. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think, you know, some of that body image side of things comes from general society and athletes aren't the same as, well, I mean, most of the people that it comes from in general society are, are unique in their own right. <laughs> you know, the models and things like that, that, you know, the if you look at normal human beings, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I think sometimes uh, social media gets fixated on certain physiques, which it don't align with what an athlete needs. And I think it's really important that there's people around you who support what you're trying to achieve and that you understand that the outcomes are really to support your own performance and it's it doesn't change who you are as an individual yes yeah absolutely I was really lucky that my you know college like my teammates and friends I was around that they didn't fall into many of those or as many of those traps as you know, we so often unfortunately find, but mm-hmm. even then it's still difficult to, you know, see social media and see all these photos and altered, you know, ideas of what you should look like. And then you look in the mirror and go, I, I don't like that. There's something wrong with me, you know, mm-hmm. but no, like you need to make sure that your body is healthy and it might not be healthy when it looks like someone else's. And that's what I experienced, you know, in my later years of college and why it was so important for me to you know, change my diet and know my lifestyles to be healthier. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Jess, 
Do you have any recommendations for athletes who maybe, you know, potentially just starting in para track and field or haven't even found their, their para sport? Any recommendations to them as to, you know, how to go about getting involved in para track and field? Yeah. Uh, first thing I would recommend is just try everything. There are so many things out there. There are tons of clinics all over the country and all over the world. And try something, even if it seems goofy, even if you don't seem like you'll be good at it. I was horrible when I first started track and field, and I've <laughs> made a professional career out of it now. So try everything. And then once you find something that you like, let that passion drive you forward. I, as I said, I was not good when I first started track and field, but I had such a love and a passion for it. And that pushed me further than any raw talent ever could have. So Mm. don't be afraid to try things. And when you find that passion, follow it. (laughs) What about any recommendations for, say, coaches? So your coach that you've, you've had for a while, I presume that they, he coaches Uh, able-bodied individuals what sort of adaptations has he had to have in his mind in terms of how he coaches you yeah I've worked with three main coaches through my sprinting and track and field days and all of them for all of them I was the first adaptive athlete Mm -hmm. and so there was a huge education curve that we had to deal with and we had a lot of times of sitting down and just saying i I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know how to train you. I don't know what I need. But open honesty and vulnerability was super important to us. Being able to sit down and be, you know, very open about my, you know, their shortcomings, my shortcomings. You know, we really were able to learn from each other. And Mm -hmm. the coaches coached me. And at times I coached the coaches. And Mm -hmm. we learned from each other and were able to, you know, try things and fail at things. And that was that was really instrumental to my mm. journey, being mm. able to fail at something because I just showed us, you know, point us to another path, another way to try things. So mm. that was, it was kind of a hard lesson to learn, but it has proven to be very effective. In life. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, if you never make mistakes, you never learn. So um, I think you have to be open to the possibility that not everything's going to go 100% the way you want it to and some things will surprise surprise you and, and work really well. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, cool. Wow, Jess, I think that's, you know, you've, you've given us so much information and you've been really, it's, it's been really interesting watching you because you were such a young athlete when you were in, you know, in Rio. I think you were still only 16 or something like that. So you've certainly grown through the sport and and developed over the years so it's been fabulous to see and I'm really excited to see how Paris goes I guess <laughs> let's get through <laughs> let's get through world champs this year in yeah. France and <laughs> then we'll look forward but before yeah. we let you go we have one more question which is what's your favorite food ooh that changes on the day. <laughs> I'm a big fan of all things bread. I love trying new breads and making new recipes with bread and baking my own. So I would put bread as a category as my favorite food. <laughs> ah, okay. So do you like grainy bread, wholemeal bread, white bread? Like, How do you like your bread? I like my bread in my mouth. I <laughs> <laughs> 
loads of different breads. I love traveling the world because you get to taste so many different types of breads from all over. Mm. I don't often find one that I don't enjoy. So yep. it changes on many different ones. <laughs> have you found any that are particularly delicious, any particular countries that you really like going to because of their breads? Ooh, Germany and Switzerland just have mm. most delectable bread. <laughs> That's mm. what my favorite. <laughs> yep, I have to agree with you there. Fantastic. Well, Jess, we'll let you get on with the rest of your day, but thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for sharing your journey with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Jess raises a really important point about understanding what your body needs to do for your sport and then making sure that you have that as your focus rather than looking at other people on social media or in in the general media and comparing yourself to them. As an athlete, your body needs to suit the sport that you do and that may be different from the general population and that's absolutely okay at that point in time. And so that should always be what you keep in the forefront of your mind. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and I hope you'll share it with your social media. Please join us next time when we talk to Mitch Belitze, who is a Dutch hand cyclist.